Well, we'll worship God again now in the reading and the preaching of his word. So at this point, we turn back to 1 Samuel. I say turn back because we're turning back from Matthew. I say turn back because we're going there again. As we have Sunday after Sunday lately, we turn back to 1 Samuel. This morning, chapter 21. This morning, we're going to have before us these two chapters, chapters 21 and 22. They, they do go together in telling the story of one episode, and they're relatively short chapters compared to some others that we've covered lately. So two chapters before us this morning. Last week, we looked at chapter 20. Remember, it was in chapter 20 that we saw both the ugliness of Saul's sin and the beauty of the bond between Jonathan and David. Remember, Jonathan and David came up with a way to confirm what Saul's attitude was toward David, and sadly, David was right. Saul was determined to have him killed. And they also came up with a way for Jonathan to let David know, although by the end of the chapter, they also found a moment when they could say their goodbyes face to face. And it was emotional. Of course it was. These two men, Jonathan and David, they had come to mean so much to one another. Of course they wept. So that was last week. That was chapter 20. That brings us to this week, chapters 21 and 22. And let me say, we should brace, brace ourselves a little bit as we're getting started. The story goes to a dark place this week. Saul does, personally. When somebody loses their moral bearings, they can act in ways that are shocking. And maybe you know that from your own experience. Maybe that's something you've witnessed. And just when you think that person has reached the limit of what they're capable of, it gets worse. They go further, further than they have before, further than you ever thought they could. Well, this morning, Saul goes further than he's gone before. Saul has shocked us before. That's not new. Remember, he hurled his spear at David. And then last week, he went further and he threw one at his own son. And every time, it's like the audience gasps because we can hardly believe what it is that we're witnessing. This week, Saul goes further, and it makes the audience gasp in horror. And it was written to teach us. And it's for that reason that even this episode comes to us from God recorded for us by God in his holy word. It's for that reason that we will not shrink back from it. Instead, we will lean in and look to the Lord to teach us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, again, we do thank you for your word. Earlier in our service, it was Matthew 2, and now in our service, it's 1 Samuel 21 and 22. 
and we would lean into your word and not retreat from it, because it is your word, and we know you. We know that you are good and wise, and so it must be good for us that we have these stories, and we pray now that you would speak to us through them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Samuel 21, beginning at verse 1, noticed right out of the gate there's a reference to a town called Nob. So a little bit of Bible geography here as we're getting started. The city of Nob wasn't too far away from Jerusalem. So it was located in that territory in Israel that was slightly south of central. We've spent nearly all of our time since we started 1 Samuel in that general area on the map, and this week is no exception. Verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, again, this morning, I want to explain a few things as we make our way through these chapters, including right here. I want to pause here and take just a moment for a little bit of ethical analysis, because it's called for here. There is no moral commentary that's offered here on the fact that David deceives Ahimelech. Ahimelech asks him what's going on, and the story that David tells him isn't true. And that's not analyzed or judged here. We're just given the facts. And by the way, that's not unusual in Bible stories. We've seen that already in 1 Samuel. It's fairly common. We'll be told that somebody said something or did something, and it's not evaluated. It's just recounted. But we can say this much. It was not wrong for David to eat that bread and for Ahimelech to give it to him under these circumstances. It was the holy bread of the tabernacle. And so it's true that this was not its primary purpose to feed David when he was hungry. But it wasn't wrong for him to eat it and for Ahimelech to offer it up, given what Ahimelech understood to be true. And I say that in part... Because Jesus said that. Jesus himself, hundreds of years later, nearly a thousand years later, 
Jesus looked back on this episode in David's life and offered up a little ethical analysis of his own. It's one of those moments in the Gospels when Jesus is being criticized because it looks to some people like Jesus and his disciples don't keep the Sabbath. So this is from Matthew 12. Listen listen to how it goes. Matthew 12. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. And then Jesus goes on to say, What you folks don't realize, what you don't understand, is what the prophet says, where God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. So Jesus is saying, that's what you people don't get, that God is a God like that, with a heart like that, with divine desires like that. So that's Jesus invoking David's example as a way of coming to his own defense and the defense of his disciples. That's Jesus helping us to think through what David did in this moment. So coming back now to David in 1 Samuel 21, it's a reminder that we need to be careful, not just about how we think about these Things, but even how we talk about them. I mean, the words we choose, and I say that because the words we choose can reflect and reinforce the moral categories in our mind. So, strictly speaking, it's not accurate to say that David broke the law of God, but that was okay, or something like that. Not accurate to say that David sinned, oh, but that was okay. It's never okay to sin. It's never okay to break the law of God. Instead, what we would say, thinking about this episode, is that the rightness of David's action, and remember, Jesus himself says David was in the right. The rightness of David's action tells us something about the law. Tells us that there was a common sense flexibility that was built into the law of God, at least some of its provisions, so that something that could be lawful in an extraordinary circumstance that would have been unlawful under normal circumstances. So just to be clear, this was not a matter of David breaking the law. There's no such thing as justifiable sin. And that's a moral category that we shouldn't even have in our minds. It's a contradiction in terms. Sin, by definition, is unjustifiable. Instead, this is an episode that helps us to have a better understanding and a fuller appreciation of the law. Really, it helps us to have a better knowledge of God, whose law it was. Because this reveals to us The wise and compassionate character of God. That's why Jesus points his contemporaries back to that saying in the book of the prophet. God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. 
I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. One way of putting it is to say that our God is a God who gets what the main things are. Because he's appointed them. Our God is a God who cares more profoundly about profound human welfare than he does about outward ceremonial observance. And hasn't that emerged already as an undercurrent in the book of 1 Samuel? We've seen this before. We've already been getting to know God like this. Because remember back in chapter 15, when Saul sins again and Samuel rebukes him for it? In that moment, what's the point that Samuel drives home? Chapter 15. He says, Saul has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen is better than the fat of rams. So here we've paused for a little bit of ethical analysis thinking about 1 Samuel 21, thinking about David and the holy bread. But by the time we're done, it's turned into an opportunity for worship. Because this is what our God is like, and there's no God like him. He was the God of David, and he is our God still. So that's the episode of David and the Holy Bread, and Jesus helps us to get it. Now let's keep going, because the story definitely keeps going. Take a look at verse 7. That's where we left off. Verse 7. And verse 7 has an ominous foreboding about it. Verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, we've got to pause there again. Brothers and sisters, this is rich. Remember, Gath was one of the cities of the Philistines. So this means, thinking about the map, David has headed west a bit toward the Mediterranean. That's where the territory of the Philistines was located. That's where he's gone to seek safety. And remember, at this point... David has become a certifiable menace to the Philistines. David has Philistine blood on his hand. And not just a little bit of it. I mean, how many of them by now has he slain on the field of battle? They've been singing about it in Israel. And the Philistines know it. And Saul knows it too. How many of them has he killed? Beginning with Goliath. And Goliath was from Gath. This is rich. Here David's fleeing into the land of the Philistines, 
trying to get away from his own king who's trying to murder him, even though David has been a servant and a blessing to him, in part by triumphing over the Philistines, and now here's David seeking safety among the Philistines in Gath with the sword of Goliath of Gath in his possession, the sword that he used to cut his head off. You cannot make this up. God moves in mysterious ways. And sure enough, we can admit this, it becomes just a little comical. I mean, the fact that David's there and the the strategy that he comes up with to preserve his own life in their midst and the way the king of Gath responds to it. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Interesting, by the way, that apparently they think he's king. And maybe you can't fault them for thinking that because of the leader that he's come to be. Verse 12, David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence. Shall this fellow come into my house? You've got to think, Achish is not the only king in human history. The only king or president or prime minister or even CEO who found himself rubbing his temples and muttering to himself, I cannot believe the types I've got to put up with on this job and you people bring me another one. Please cancel the rest of my meetings today. Poor Achish. So that's David's strategy to save his own skin. But eventually David realizes this is not um, a solution that's going to last. He's got to move on. So now we're at the beginning of chapter 22. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So once more, a little bit of Bible geography. Adullam was in the territory of Israel. So David's come back east just a little bit from the territory of the Philistines over by the Mediterranean. He's come back east into the territory of Israel. And Adullam was located in the territory of the tribe of Judah, which was the southernmost of the 12 tribes. So now we're just a little bit to the south of the region on the map where we've been spending most of our time in 1 Samuel. Adullam in the territory of Judah. And let's keep going. Verse 1. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. I think it's fair to say this is what we might call a ragtag band of soldiers and allies. 
who have sided with David. David's cause was just, but I think we all know even a just cause can attract people of all sorts of backstories and motivations. And now David's got a crew like that, about 400 men. It's interesting to me where it says, his brothers went down there to him. We're not told, and so it must be that we don't need to know, but I can't help but wonder, what is David's eldest brother Eliab thinking these days? Eliab, who was so dismissive of him before David killed Goliath. A lot's happened since then. And then verse 3, we keep keep moving on the map. Look at verse 3. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. So now at this point, he's gone even farther east. The, The people of Moab, the Moabites... Their territory was to the east of Israel. It was on the other side of the Jordan River. Really, it was on the other side of the Salt Sea because the Jordan River winds down and empties into that sea. So now he's gone all the way east. So at this point, what are we seeing? David's going wherever he needs to go. We've seen him go west among the Philistines. We've seen him come back and go south in the territory of Judah. We've seen him go east among the Moabites. David is going wherever he needs to go in order to find safety for himself and for his friends and family. And think about it. That's the position that Saul has put him in. Saul has turned David into this desperate wanderer. who who has surrounded himself with a desperate band. Saul's done this. This, too, has layers of irony to it. The king of Israel, who should have been a servant of God, has forced the anointed one of God to seek safety and refuge among the enemies of God. And at least here... That's where David's finding it. So this whole movement of David on the map, it's not just something to trace and track on the map. It speaks volumes about Saul and about what Saul has done, about what Saul has turned David's life into, the anointed of God. So verse 3. David is now among the Moabites. And he said to the king of Moab, verse 3, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So now he's, he's come back into the territory of Judah. He's come back over. And this is when things get dark. Look at verse 6. And we'll read through to the end. Verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. 
And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse come to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep. He put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. So that's what we've got in... Chapters 21 and 22, that's what unfolds here. As I said, it's hard 
But it's an opportunity for us to be reminded of what we've told ourselves before, which is what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, which is that these things were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come, even this. So the question becomes, what do we take from this? These things were written for our instruction. Well, okay. How can we be instructed? No question. What what Saul does here, what Doeg the Edomite carries out on Saul's behalf, it's just awful. Saul orders it. Doeg carries it out. For me, one of the most powerful moments in this whole dreadful narrative is verse 17. Look again at verse 17. So this is chapter 22. This is when the king said to his guard, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also was with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. He gives the order, and they won't do it. The servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. He's the king. And he gives this order, and they won't do it. And that's when he turns to the Edomite. And he gives the order again. And the Edomite is willing. The very fact that Saul's servants couldn't bring themselves to do this. And remember, Saul's servants were perfectly willing to go after David before. It's not like they weren't... Saul loyalists they were, but there are some things that are just so awful that natural loyalty yields. It has to. But Doeg the Edomite has no such compunction. And by the way, you can't help but notice this proves what God said before, which is that David is a better man than Saul. Remember several chapters ago, God, through Samuel, said that to Saul. I have a man in mind, a neighbor who is better than you. And this proves it. Think about the contrast. Think about the contrast between David and Saul. Saul is perfectly willing To order the massacre of God's anointed ones. These priests. Willing to order the massacre of God's anointed ones who were innocent in the matter. But then a few chapters later, David is going to honor God twice. By being unwilling to strike the Lord's anointed. And in that case, it's Saul himself. Even though Saul deserves it, David won't do it. Twice. David's got the opportunity. And both times he says something like this. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Saul survives twice because David had that regard for the anointing of God that Saul didn't have. That's the stark contrast between Saul and David. 
proof positive that David really is better than Saul. And then it's, it's not just the priests themselves. It's the whole town. It's every single creature that draws breath in that priestly town. Think about that too. You remember a few chapters ago, Saul was unwilling to carry out holy war against the Amalekites. Even though God told him to. Saul was unwilling to go all the way with that holy war. And he spared the king and the best of the livestock. While here, Saul carries out a kind of twisted, unholy, holy war. Against his own holy, priestly city. This is beyond barbaric. It's another one of those Bible passages that's hard to read. And it is that because inevitably it gets your heart and mind engaged as you read it and hear it. You can't help but imagine this. And and even react to it internally, viscerally. As you read it and hear it. And so for me it brought to mind that other Bible story that I read for us earlier in our service. Another king In another story, King Herod, Matthew 2, there's a reason what Herod orders has come to be known as the massacre of the innocents. Herod became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. And so Jeremiah's word was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. A massacre of the innocents. One of my all time favorite Christmas songs is Coventry Carol. It's beautiful, but it's haunting. Haunting in a way that makes you wonder why anyone would call it their favorite. It gets dark, that Christmas carol, in verse 3. I'm sure you've heard it. Maybe, like me, you've sung it. Herod the king in his raging, charged he hath this day his men of might in his own sight, all young children to slay. And we sing those words at what is supposed to be this joyful time of year. We sing those words. You know what? It's good for us to sing. Because singing has a way of confronting us with realities that otherwise we might run and hide from. Realities that at least on occasion we need to be confronted with. So what do we take from this, what Saul does here back in 1 Samuel? Well, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, this is a powerful, awful illustration of the power of sin. This is an illustration of the power of sin. And 
And we take that personally. We're not just observers here. As I was saying earlier in our service, this is a mirror that is stood up for us to see ourselves in. Because none of us is a stranger to the power of sin. I mean our own sin. So that this ought to humble us. Maybe you've heard the old saying, if you want to understand the worst of man's inhumanity to man, all you've got to do is take the animosities and suspicions that you can find in any given moment in any church choir in any town and just water them and remove all restraints and give it enough time. So, yeah, this is awful. And maybe we can say, surely this is something that we would never be reduced to ourselves. And thank God for that. But we've also got to say, none of us is a stranger to the power of sin. And so we should mean it when we say, thank God for that. Thank God for his restraining, transforming mercy at work in our lives. So that we're not given over to the worst of what our sin might become. The worst of what our sin might lead us to do, including to do to other people. So when we say, thank God, it's not just a throwaway line. It's not just a courtesy expression. We mean it. Because we look up and behold the mercy of God. Apart from which we would become and do the unimaginable. So we can start there. This ought to humble us. Here's the power of sin. But then we can keep going. It's not just the power of sin in general. We can, we can narrow our, our focus. We can be a little more specific than that. Think about it. The episode here in 1 Samuel 22. The slaughter of these priests. The whole city at Saul's command. And the episode in Matthew 2, the murder of those children at Herod's command. What do those two moments, those two awful episodes have in common? Well, what you've got in both stories is a man who's desperate to cling to power. A man who's so desperate to hold on to power that he will ruthlessly shockingly take steps to eliminate anyone who might possibly pose a threat. To punish anyone who hasn't been loyal. Perhaps even to deter anyone who might get ideas of their own. So it's not just the power of sin in general that's on display when you read these stories. It's a particular kind of sin sickness. It's the idol worship of power. And that, too, that is not so far removed from our own hearts. Saul was a king. Herod was a king. You are not. I am not. That's true. And so on one level, these stories seem to be so far removed from us and from our own experience. But no, this is not so far away from us. Not as far away as perhaps we'd like to think. And I say that because there is in every one of our hearts the foolish and unrealistic desire to be in complete control. 
And insofar as that desire is there to rule our lives, to that degree we can find ourselves feeling threatened by anything or anyone that might jeopardize that sense of control or call it into question or expose it. And that's when we can scheme and maneuver and manipulate and lash out. Perhaps even in ways that surprise ourselves when we see it in the mirror. Was that me? Was I even capable of that? I had no idea. Until a desire for control got a hold of me. So, for example, maybe we engage in a little whispering campaign at work that 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 colleague over there can't really be trusted because it's starting to feel like he's encroaching on our turf. Or we lose our temper at home because members of the family seem to be frustrating our best laid plans. Or we schedule that church meeting for that one hour, that one evening, when we know that one person cannot come. Or worst of all, we lash out at God. As if he were in the wrong to be in control. Instead of letting us run things. Again, there is in every one of our hearts, to some degree or another... This foolish and unrealistic desire to be in control. And so we can, we can feel threatened by anything that jeopardizes it, that calls it into question, that exposes it. And then it shows. It shows in thought and word and deed, perhaps in ways that are shocking to ourselves. We can get caught up in advancing our own agendas Tearing other people down, grumbling against God, and we can be left thinking, I didn't even know I had that in me. I had no idea. But when that happens, as disheartening and perhaps shocking as it is, it becomes an opportunity for us to run to God for grace. In other words, it becomes an opportunity to respond to the revelation of our own sin in a way that is positively un-Saul-like. It's a moment to run to God for grace in a way that Saul never did. Grace that forgives us so that we're, we're no longer alienated from God. Grace that transforms us so that we're set free from the worship of power and control. And friends, that grace is there to be had because of another priest who was slain. It rightly makes the audience gasp in horror to contemplate the injustice that was wrought upon Jesus, our priest. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, they crucified the Lord of glory. Just when you think the wandering covenant people of God had gone as far as they could go, they went further. Now it wasn't just one of the prophets. They crucified the Lord of glory. They murdered God's priest and called it justice. They called it holy. And we gasp. 
at this revelation of the power of sin. And think about it. They were motivated in part by the realization that Jesus posed a threat to their power. And they couldn't stand for that. He had to go. So that's become something of a running theme, hasn't it? The idol worship of power and the lengths that some people will go in the name of it. And yet at the same time that we gasp at this, this unspeakable injustice that was the cross, thanks to what we see through the eyes of faith, we end up resting in it. That which made us gasp makes us rest. Because the cross is the power and wisdom of God for our salvation. It's thanks to the cross, even that human injustice, that divine justice was vindicated and our salvation was gained so that there is forgiveness for sinners like ourselves. So, brothers and sisters, no question, it is a hard story that we've had to read today. Hard and rightly humbling. Because it's a reminder of the power of sin, including our own. But there's always grace that's greater than our sin. In fact, it's grace, perhaps, that makes us gasp. Because it's staggering to think that we should be so loved by God as that. So let us repent and believe. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do tremble at what we've read today. Matthew 2, 1 Samuel 22 drives us to our knees. Here is the power of sin. This humbles us. Indeed, we say, may it humble us. May it open our eyes as well to that sin sickness that is the worship, the idol worship of power. We gasp at the sight of such sin. But that is not the end. That sense of shock and dreadful wonder. No, it drives us to you to seek your grace again. Father, humble us. Forgive us. And never fix our eyes on Christ, the priest who was slain, that we might be saved. And we pray in his name. Amen.